We turn now to the New Testament uh, book of Romans. We'll read the seventh chapter, Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. You may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this, from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Connection with our scripture reading, we turn also the Belgian Confession, article 15 on page 169, the doctrine of original sin. We believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has been spread through the whole human race. It is a corruption of all nature, an inherited depravity which even infects small infants, 
in their mother's womb, and the root which produces in man every sort of sin. It is therefore so vile and enormous in God's sight that it is enough to condemn the, whole, the human race, and is not abolished or wholly uprooted even by baptism, seeing that sin constantly boils forth as though from a contaminated spring. Nevertheless, it is not imputed to God's children for their condemnation, but is forgiven by his grace and mercy, not to put them to sleep, but so that the awareness of this corruption might often make believers groan as they long to be set free from the body of this death. Therefore we reject the error of the Pelagians, who say that this sin is nothing else than a matter of imitation. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, why is it that the world, our world in which we live in, is uh, is characterized, and it seems increasingly so, it's characterized by uh, such hatred and division, uh, violence, a disregard for, for life, so much poverty and abuse, exploitation, lust, a disrespect for life, perversity of every kind, and we can go on and on and on. And uh, I think we would also acknowledge, if we've lived a while, to uh, observe that it seems as if these things have been on the increase, at least uh, to our observation. And we might uh, ask the questions, well, why, why do things seem to be getting worse? And I suppose we could come up with uh, different explanations for that that are valid to a certain extent. And we could talk about uh, lax discipline uh, in the home. We could talk about uh, soft laws, uh, a failure to uh, execute uh, justice in punishing uh, crime. We could observe that whereas in times uh, past, at least in North America, uh, the Ten Commandments were more widely known, and uh, they're unknown and they're untaught in in our day, perhaps in contrast to former times. And uh, we can recognize that that these changes do have an effect upon society. They do have an effect upon the crime rate. They have an effect upon the the attitudes of uh, of people and the laws of the land. Uh, because these things, the law of God and uh, instruction in, in uh, the truth of, of wrong or right, it serves to uh, exert a kind of restraint upon sin. That's one of the functions of the law. It, it restrains sin. But even acknowledging that, it really involves a, a very profound assumption. And that is that if... If uh, we just let nature take its course, what you have is increasing disintegration in terms of moral behavior and conduct. And that says something about, about nature. It's confirmed uh, with respect to children. Is it wise to let children just go their own way, to just leave them to their own devices, just feed them and, and try to make them feel safe? And other than that, set no boundaries. Don't correct any kind of behavior. Just let them let them do what they want. Well, experience as well as the teaching of Scripture uh, shows that that's not really a very good idea. 
A child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The wisdom of God says. Or it says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And the rod of correction will uh, bring it out or purge it. You have to remember that, children, when your parents discipline you. Uh, when they say they do that because they love you and they want you to learn to avoid what is wrong and harmful, uh, they say that as those who are thankful that they were disciplined and corrected when they were children. Because this isn't just their opinion. Uh, this reflects the reality that left to ourselves, if we just do whatever we want, well, that's not good. We don't show a love for God. and We don't show a love for our neighbor that way. But the very fact that our inclination, the tendency of the whole human race is toward degradation when left to ourselves, even without those things that restrain sin, well, that's a profound commentary on human nature, isn't it? Why is it that our world is characterized by sin? Well, years ago, uh, in school, children were were taught their ABCs by a primer that begin, began with A is for Adam. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. So teaching the alphabet involved teaching the doctrine of original sin. We began to look at the explanation that uh, God gives to us for the reality of sin and misery in this life. God created all things good, but man turned away and rebelled against him and fell into sin. And uh, Article 15 before us really elaborates on that as it uh, explains uh, the doctrine, the teaching of original sin. That's a theological term. Uh, with a with a specific meaning. It's not simply a reference to the first sin, uh, but it's also a doctrine that concerns how that first sin affects and infects us all from the very beginning, from the origin of our own personal life at conception. Now, this doctrine of original sin is, uh, even where it's known at all today, is rejected. It's offensive to human pride if it's heard of at all. But only, again, by facing the truth about ourselves, only by facing the truth about man's misery, misery is there hope of, of deliverance. And so we, we confess together that original sin has indeed spread uh, through the whole human race. And we're going to look at that uh, beginning with our consideration of the radical corruption of original sin. And uh, we might we might put it this way to start that our situation is far worse uh, than the fact that people do bad things. It's far worse even than all people do some bad things. You know, most people will agree to that, right? No most people will, will have no objection to this uh point. But at the same time, they'll say things that, oh, yes, that's true, but I believe that, that people basically are good at heart. And see, when they say that, what they're saying is that people are radically good. When it comes to, to the, to the root of the matter, when it comes to the heart of the matter, when, when, when it comes to the deepest reality of human nature, there's a heart of goodness there. Yes, there's bad behavior, but that's caused by by bad examples, that's that's caused by 
uh, bad influences or environmental considerations or uh, by their upbringing or by poverty or by a lack of education and on and on. And it sounds pretty positive. It sounds actually kind of, kind of charitable to say that all people are, are good at heart. It sounds noble. But what this does is that it assumes that, that bad uh, behavior is rooted in things outside of us, not from within us. You know, there are others that say, well, actually there are good people and there are bad people. And we might say, well, that's, that's kind of an improvement. It recognizes that there are bad people. It is quite something to hear a social commentator to admit that there are just bad people. There are people that, that should just be removed from society so that the rest of us are protected from these kinds of people. But when you think about that, that also involves a, a certain kind of an assumption, doesn't it? And it's really kind of a self-righteous assumption. Because how many of those people who say, yeah, there are good people and there are bad people. How many of them would classify themselves among those bad people? No, it's a self-righteous way of acknowledging, yeah, there are, there are people that are, are uh, characterized by a criminal mind. There are people that are, are unredeemable. There's really no hope for them. You just need to protect yourself against them. They are bad to the core. But they assume that that kind of badness, again, usually involves uh, some kind of dangerous or criminal behavior that's harmful to others. And people can be pretty self-righteous, even in the way they admit that that there are bad people. How many people will ever say that all people are basically bad? Now, there are some that would say that in a cynical way, a kind of a despairing way, but in a way it's more honest. It's rare for someone to say that people are bad at the very roots of their personality, to say that uh, people are bad at heart, right? That's what the word radical really involves. It, it has to do with the root of the matter. And that's how our confession describes original sin, as a root which produces every sort of sin, like a, like a contaminated spring, constantly boiling forth sin. Well, that's indeed a dark and a pessimistic view of human nature. But the question is, is it true? It is true. And that's what the doctrine of original sin involves. And, and that means that original sin also is to be distinguished from, from actual sins. Actual sins would be overt uh, violations of the, of the law specific violations, e even in thought or word or attitude, but, but activities of the body or of the mind that are contrary to the specific commands of God. Those are sins. But behind that, and as an explanation for that, is this readiness to sin, this tendency to sin, this inclination towards sin that characterizes our human nature, apart from the actual commission of any specific sins. Another way of putting it is, is like this. There's a difference between saying we are sinners because we commit sin and saying 
we commit sin because we are sinners. In other words, our sinnerhood is not the the result of committing sins, but committing sins is the result of a sinnerhood. It's the result of our our nature that's deeper, that's behind the actual commission of any sin whatsoever. That's what Jesus uh, is talking about in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, first, or first of all, Matthew, Matthew 15, verse uh, 19 and uh, following. He says, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. In other words, there is an evil heart that is the source of evil thoughts. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. He uses another uh, 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 picture, imagery, in, in chapter in 12, in uh, verse uh, 33 and following, where he uses the analogy uh, uh, to a tree. He says, either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Uh, when, when you see apples on a tree, that says something about the nature of that tree, even when there's no leaves or no apples on it whatsoever. Its, its nature is such that it will produce blossoms and apples. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Now again, that distinction between good and evil assumes uh, the Bible's teaching, its theological teaching about what makes that difference. And that is a new heart. It's grace. But by nature, we are all evil. And our thoughts, our words, our desires... Reflect that. And so that has to do with the radical corruption of original sin. That it is deeply embedded in our very nature. Secondly, we look at the inescapable transmission of original sin. It should humble us to see our sin reflected in the behavior of our children. I, I, I suppose we could all give examples of that. Perhaps we hear our children speak in a harsh tone of voice. And we might hear echoes of our own words. You know, there are countless ways in which this can become manifested in a pretty embarrassing way, right? Maybe you've seen videos. I've seen videos that people uh, post on Facebook of little children acting in a very bad manner. And the things they say and the way they say it, makes everybody realize that that's what they picked up from mom or dad. And ha, 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 very, very funny. Actually, not really. It's pretty sad, isn't it? How quickly children pick up and imitate our sins. And along with that, you might see their own individual corruptions and tendencies that you've never taught them. And maybe the inclination is to blame the spouse. Oh, they got that from him or her. Well, there's that possibility, right? Because we do have an influence upon our children, but they have their own corrupt nature that is the source of their sins. They go astray from the womb, speaking lies, the Bible says. They don't have to be taught to tell lies. It comes natural to them. In time it will appear, 
They don't have to be taught to be uh, to be selfish with their toys. They don't they don't have to be taught how to throw a temper tantrum and how to be angry and how to uh, display a, a kind of murderous anger that can appear in the face of a of a child. There is an inherited depravity that that even infects infants in the womb, in their mother's womb. Now, that's a confession of uh, what the psalmist acknowledged as he was aware, profoundly and deeply aware of his own sin that had come to expression in murder and adultery. And we heard him say in verse 5 of Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That's not, that's not suggesting a sinful act in his conception, but it's an acknowledgement of a sinful nature that he has from conception. Who can bring it, bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. That's the testimony of the, of the book of Job. Or we hear likewise in Job chapter 20, 25. How can man be righteous before God, or how can he be pure who is born of woman? And the implied and assumed answer is, you can't, by nature. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? You must be born again. That which is flesh is flesh. You need a radical transformation that is miraculous in its origin, not natural. You must be born from above, from God. You need a new nature. We acknowledge that, even in the form for infant baptism, we confess that our children are conceived and born in sin and are by nature children of wrath, so that they cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. And that's contrary to the teaching of this 5th century theologian uh, Pelagius, who uh, denied original sin, who was a champion for the freedom of the will, and attributed sin to the free choices of people. That's as far as it goes. And uh, the church father, Augustine, or Augustine, uh, wrote and uh, contradicted that false teaching. And uh, the Protestant Reformation was a, a restoration of Augustinianism when it comes to an understanding of the depths of, uh, of sin. There is an inescapable transmission of sin, and there has been only one exception to this. And uh, we know that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so that he was exempted from that corruption that the Heidelberg Catechism also uh, speaks of and answered the question, how uh, did man uh, become so corrupt? Where did it come from? Notice that it says, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents. Parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But Christ was exempted from that contamination because he was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus spoke to his disciples about his uh, his coming suffering and death and the, 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 the hour and the power of darkness, he said that Satan is coming, the prince of this world, but he has nothing in me. In other words, there was nothing within Christ's nature that allowed Satan to take hold of any inclination towards sin because Christ himself was pure, deeply pure and holy. 
Otherwise, he could not be our mediator. He would not, otherwise, he not only would have shared in our corruption, but he would have shared in our guilt before God, were he not exempted from original sin. And that involves a distinction between corruption and guilt that also is important to understand when it comes down to this doctrine. And we, we consider then thirdly the universal guilt of original sin. Uh, as I, as I indicated, there are two parts to original sin. The, the first being corruption and the other being guilt. Not in terms of chronology, they go together, but we, we must distinguish these things. And the corruption of our, our nature is by a, a hereditary uh, transmission. Again, it involves the judgment of God, but it is, it is communicated that, uh, it is communicated by um, Adam and Eve as their sinful nature is passed on from generation to generation by natural conception and birth. Again, that's what I just read from um, answer seven as to the origin of this corrupt nature. It says, from the fall and disobedience, not, of, not simply of Adam, but the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. But then there is the guilt of Adam's sin. And the guilt of Adam's sin that we share in is by imputation. Adam and Eve are not only our natural parents, but Adam, specifically, Adam was our, our covenant representative. That's why this uh, um, children's primer singles out Adam when it says, In Adam's fall, we sinned all. We sinned in Adam's sin. We became guilty in Adam's sin because the guilt of his sin was put to our account in the righteous judgment of God. That means we are reckoned guilty of Adam's specific sin. And this is before we commit actual sins. We not only inherit the corrupt nature of Adam, but we are reckoned guilty of his disobedience. Well, that's another question that arises. Is that really true? And we're not left in doubt. It's not some a theological construct that people came up with. But it's based on the teaching of Scripture. It's based uh, most specifically in the book of Romans in the fifth chapter where we read in, in verses 18 and 19, as through one man's offense, and that one man there is with reference to Adam, clearly in the context, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift of God came to all, resulting in justification of life. So that's a contrast with the Lord Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is imputed, is put to the count of those who believe in him. So there is a close kind of parallel between the imputation of Adam's guilt to sinners, to our condemnation, and the imputation of the second Adam, he is called, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us for eternal life, for our acceptance in God's sight. Not because we ever achieved the kind of obedience that God demands, because Jesus did on our behalf as our covenant representative in our place. Verse 12 of this same, cha same chapter says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all because all sinned, 
And that's kind of a parenthetical statement, but it contains this uh, teaching again that through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, which is the, the result of sin. Death is not a natural thing. It was not part of God's original creation. It entered into this world right along with the guilt of sin against God. And again, this passage goes on to, to show that that guilt extends also to, uh, to infant children who have not sinned after the same manner as Adam sinned. Death reigns. It reigns over children. Why do children die? Who are innocent of actual sins, we might say. They've never consciously transgressed God's commandments. But why does death affect children as well? Because the imputation of Adam's guilt upon the whole human race. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even before the giving of the law, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. It was not by a conscious disobedience to God's law that explains the death of of children. In other words, None are exempt. None are exempt from both the corruption and the condemnation of sin, apart from the intervention of God's grace. And that leads us to consider thirdly or fourthly the persistent power of sin. It's a power that's at work. And it's a power that our confession makes clear is at work uh, both in unbelievers and in believers. For unbelievers, it is a power that completely rules over them leaving them under condemnation uh, for their original and actual sins. Again, that's that's language that is that is found in uh in the, the Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer answer ten, where it asks, Will such disobedience uh go unpunished? Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as our actual sin. In other words, it's a, a reference to original sin. He is terribly displeased with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity. But we also acknowledge that this power of sin also remains in believers in this life. And that that's what is meant uh, by these statements of our confession where it says it is so vile and enormous in God's sight that it is enough to condemn the human race and it is not abolished or wholly uprooted even by baptism. Now again, at this point we need to understand uh, what our confession is saying. It's, it's not saying that well, baptism it, it almost removes all of original sin it, it removes a big part of original sin, but not absolutely everything, as if the water of baptism is in itself effective to remove a lot of original sin, but it's not everything. No, we know that the water of baptism itself does not wash away sin. And so we understand that the confession here is speaking about what baptism signifies. It's speaking of that spiritual baptism of being washed by the Holy Spirit. Or regenerated. In other words, it's saying even regeneration, even when our nature is fundamentally renewed by grace, that does not totally eliminate the remnants 
of original sin and its active presence and power in the lives of Christians. That won't happen until glorification. Sanctification is an ongoing process where we have to contend with sin, that we have to fight against the old man. That's a reference to that Adamic nature that we inherit, that characterizes us. And that that Adamic, that sinful nature will never improve. It will never get better. It can't be transformed. The only solution is its eradication, its death. That's why we're called uh, not to improve the deeds of the body, not to, not to uh, try to dress it up and uh, somehow change it, but to put it to death. Put to death, then, the deeds of the, uh, of the old man, the deeds of the body. The power, the aims of the old nature are never changed. They will only be altogether eradicated when this body of death has come to an end. Now, in view of this congregation, briefly in, in closing, there are, there are three applications I want to point out. And the first is one of great comfort. And you probably are thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm about ready for that now. This is a sobering, it's a dark description of our sinfulness. But the great comfort is also uh, confessed in this uh, passage where after speaking of this corruption and guilt of original sin, it says, nevertheless, it is not imputed to God's children for their condemnation, but is forgiven by his grace and mercy. It is not imputed to us for our condemnation. Why? Why is that? Well, you know that the, the next verse after Romans 7 verse uh, 25 is, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's through union with the Savior that we escape the condemnation of our original sin. And why is that? Well, because he entirely took our place from his very conception and birth, right? What comfort is it to you that uh, the Lord Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? What does Lord's Day 14 say as to how this holy conception and birth of Christ benefits you? He is our mediator. He qualifies as mediator because he is without sin. Otherwise, he'd have to suffer for his own sin. And in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. His perfect uh, conception and birth is sufficient to cover all my actual sins and to reach so deep into my life from its very beginning that that original tendency and that original corruption of my own nature that began to manifest itself so early in my life and is still present with me is not imputed to me, but the righteousness of Christ covers it. His holy conception of birth is all sufficient in the sight of God. He is so great that our Father looks upon the Son in whom he is well pleased. And for his sake, he's well pleased with sinners who are in him. No condemnation to those who are in Christ, united to him by true faith. And then secondly, we're taught in Scripture 
has confessed before us uh, to long for heaven in the midst of this conflict because our remaining sin is a source, a source of grief to us. And it is a continual source of humility. A confession speaks of, uh, of the saints as those who often groan. They groan. Do you ever do that? You just say, oh, ever feel totally disgusted with yourself? Ever say, how could I do that? Well, that kind of groaning with a realization of the remnants of our own sin and corruption should teach us also to look and to long for complete deliverance. Who shall deliver me from this body or the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember, that's how Romans 7 ends. It describes this ongoing struggle and a kind of failure. The things that I want to do, I don't end up doing. I end up doing the things I hate. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then there's this kind of realism that, yeah, with, with, the, with the mind, I, I serve the law of God. He has the mind of Christ. He has the, the renewed mind of a believer. But with respect to the remnants of the flesh, yeah, he serves the law of sin. That's not his choice. That's not his desire. That's not his aim, but it's the fact. It's the reality that will dog him throughout this life until he is delivered from this body of death. But we may look and long uh, for that deliverance in the midst of uh, battles and many setbacks and failures. And then thirdly, this teaches us uh, a constant and total reliance upon God's grace in Christ with with a confidence in that that ultimate victory of deliverance that awaits us. May God help us to receive this teaching with humility and faith a faith that leads us to glorify Christ, the second Adam, who has reversed the horrible consequences of our fall in Adam and has brought us deliverance through him. Amen.